the 2023 enlargement package calls EU membership a geostrategic investment and urges the EU to answer the call of history by accelerating enlargement. But are the EU27 and future member states ready for a further enlarged union? Welcome to the EPC podcast, where we'll delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies and people. My name is Barbara Vanotti and I'm the Media Officer at the European Policy Centre. On Wednesday 8th November, the Commission published its 2023 enlargement package, outlining the state of play and progress made by the Western Balkans, Ukraine, the Republic of Moldova, Georgia and Turkey in the path towards EU accession. The package recommended opening accession negotiation to Ukraine and the Republic of Moldova, granting candidate status to Georgia and opening negotiation with Bosnia and Herzegovina once the necessary degree of compliance is achieved. At a high-level discussion at the European Policy Centre and the official launch of the EPC Task Force on EU enlargement, Director General Gert Jan Kukman presented the package, its recommendation and country reports. But what do these recommendations mean for aspiring member states? What are the main challenges they still need to face? And will the current member states endorse them? To respond to this question, I sat down with Olivia Costa, Professor at the College of Europe and Rapporteur of the report of the Franco-German Working Group on the EU Institutional Reform, Tiona Lavrilashvili, EPC Policy Analyst and Coordinator of the Task Force on EU Enlargement, and Berta Lopez-Dumanek junior policy analyst at the European Policy Centre. Thank you very much for joining me. Did the package reflect your expectations? I think everyone was expecting the Commission to move in that direction. Uh, There is always, I would say, some sort of paradox in that, in the way the process of enlargement is conducted, because on the one hand, uh, since the very beginning, the enlargement is designed by the Commission as some very technical or even technocratic process. It's about countries meeting a number of standards to be acknowledged the quality of candidate and then being even better at at respecting those standards for the official negotiation to be launched. And then the negotiations themselves are also very technical, which is about the capacity of the candidate country to fulfill a number of conditions and to respect what is called the acquis communautaire, all the 30,000 norms that were adopted since the very beginning of European integration. But at the same time, it's a very political process. And if we remember how things were with the enlargement to, let's say, UK or Portugal or Greece, or later the enlargement of the 2000s, this was very political. It was really about the EU trying to help countries moving towards democracy, towards a market economy, and so on. And so today, the situation is exactly the same. On the one hand, the Commission keeps saying that it's really a process which is based on some indicators. It's something which is evidence-based. But at the same time, it's a very political process because it is about uh, subtracting a number of countries to the influence of, of Russia. So everyone was expecting uh, Ms. van der Leyen to, to say that uh, the negotiation will now really start with Moldova and, and Ukraine. And at the same time, I would say those countries made the necessary efforts to allow Ursula van der Leyen to go in that direction. 
I agree with Professor Costa, and I think that indeed what we have seen in this package is two logics, right? So on the one hand, we have the logic of this geopolitical imperative and this political logic. The second logic is this merit-based approach, this technical approach, right, that we, we have seen. In terms of this EU's Eastern partners, we have this political momentum that is opening the accession talks recommendation and also granting the candidate status to Georgia. But on the other hand, when we look also in the progress reports of the Western Balkans, then there is a more sober assessment of the of the reforms. And that is a reality that at the end of the day, uh, yes, we have a political momentum. On the other hand, uh, we have this merit-based approach. And even though uh, at our event, Gertrude Gottman mentioned that uh, he doesn't want his staff to call this process, but it is a process. It is all about uh, meeting the benchmark and making sure that the countries are key. They are transposed to the EU legislation and so on and so forth. Also, the package has been received, has built in, in different ways in both regions that it was addressing. So the optimism and the, the hopes that have been seen like in the Eastern, in the former associated trio countries, so um, Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia, hasn't been the same in the Western Balkans. In the Western Balkans, there, there is a feeling the Commission is still missing a strategic plan on how to address the enlargement process in the region. The package has fell short at, at showing which are the, the plans, the roadmap that the Commission has um, in, in making this, the countries in the Western Balkans get engaged in the process, believe as well that the European perspective is still in the horizon and in triggering reforms in these countries for them to to align with the EU membership criteria. And your response actually, Berta, brings me to another question I was asking myself, whether you see any differences in the way the Commission approaches the valuation and monitoring of the associated trio and the Western Balkans. Of course, Berta, you've already mentioned something, but if the other speakers also want to comment on this. There is a difference and there is a real challenge here for the Commission not to be perceived as unfair. Uh, we, we all remember what happened just after the beginning of the war in Ukraine. It, it became very clear very soon that Ukraine and Moldova, maybe Georgia, would be granted the status of candidate country, which would have never happened without, without the war. They, they were very far from being ready and from moving in that direction. So things went very quickly because after only one month, they, they were candidates and there were positive signs in Brussels. And as soon as June 2022, they were granted the official status of candidate, which is totally unexpected. And in a way, the EU here has lowered its standards. Then, then the Western Balkan leaders felt a bit bad because they were been waiting for 10 years for some of them for a negotiation to, to, to restart and to move and not, not much is happening. So the commission is today a bit in a situation of being obliged to show signs of goodwill towards the Western Balkan, not for those countries to feel bad about the situation because it would not be acceptable for those countries who have been very patient in waiting for negotiation to really start to see Moldova and Ukraine be welcome within the EU uh, before then. So here, uh, Ursula von der Leyen is also obliged to make some efforts to create a balance between the two groups of candidates. But I think it's important to take into account that so it's not only a matter of like whether both regions are being assessed in different ways, but in the incentives that would not only the incentive, but the expectations that both, both regions can have. Like since the start of the war, we have listen like commission like the president von der leyen praising um the progress that the eastern partnership countries have have made towards uh, meeting the the established criteria and like how quick they managed to fulfill 
these requirements, but it is important to take into account that the Western Balkans, as Professor Costa was saying, have been kept in a waiting room for 20 years. So, of course, they don't believe in the EU promises as much as um, the Eastern partnership countries do. Yeah, when we are praising the progress that some countries make and maybe like the um, not so quick progress, progress that other countries are, are are making, we have to take into account what is the background and what has happened in the past um, 20 years. So it seems from your responses that there are differences, but what about similarities? Do you think there are some similarities in the way the Commission has handled the Western Balkan and the Associated Trio? Yes, Professor Costa. Yeah, because there is that, that tension that was mentioned by everyone between the political dimension and the, the technocratic dimension or technical dimension of enlargement. When it comes to the evaluation of the local situation, I wouldn't say that the Commission is unfair. They, they are using the kinds, same same kind of evaluation to measure the various aspects of the Copenhagen criteria, whereas this respect of the rule of law or fight against corruption or the state of the economy and the readiness of the country to be able to cope with the tension and competition within the single market. On that side, the report is super systematic. And, and I think that there is fairness here in the evaluation of the situation. Then the countries are, are very, very different. So, uh, there is no point comparing the challenges of integrating one of the smaller countries of the Western Balkan and Ukraine, because in terms of impact on the policies, the geopolitical situation, the budget, whatever, it's not the same at all. But but the report is very systematic and tries to be fair uh, on that respect. One of the things that we already mentioned is how both uh, the Republic of Moldova and Ukraine managed to go forward, as we say. The Largement Package recommended opening accession negotiation to these two countries. But one of the questions I was wondering is, looking internally, do you think the U27 are likely and are ready to endorse these recommendations as outlined by the package? Great question, because this is what we are waiting for, right? So what is the next step now? So the next step is, Barbara, indeed, uh, the summit that is upcoming on 14th and 15th of December in Brussels. And I think that, the, of course, the pressure is very high. All, all the eyes are at this summit. Uh, what will be the outcome um, uh, of EU27 leaders? So I think that there is a high probability, and this is uh, what I believe that will happen, uh, that uh, the uh, Council will endorse these recommendations, particularly when it comes to Ukraine and Moldova, because, again, there is geopolitics, which is only game in town. And during uh, the launching event of our task force, also Director General was very clear and he said that he's very much ready and eager to send his negotiating teams and start the screening process. However, I also expect some complications and the complications comes from and difficulties around these decisions uh, to uh, give this uh, 50 billion package to uh, to Ukraine. And we have seen uh, certain complications already during the past summit. And I think that uh, in this respect, Orban and uh, Fizzo, uh, let's say a new team, uh, will also try to uh, get their own credits and try to get their own terms. And I see that, Professor Costa, you were nodding at one point. Uh, is it fair to say that you agree with this assessment? We are all cautious. We always try to avoid making, making prediction. But it, it would make sense for the European Council in December to uh, open the negotiation. But then I'm pretty sure that there will be some condition put by some countries because there are three elements that are showing the difficulties within the European Council. The first one is what Teona mentioned, the difficulty for the 27 to agree on that package on 50 billion over the four year proposed by the Commission. This is not very encouraging if, if we consider the 
the, the, the follow-up uh, of, the, of the process because everyone knows that it's impossible to have Ukraine within the EU without a massive plan of support for reconstruction and so on. The second difficulty is linked to the war, the situation of war in Gaza and the fact that um, now some leaders are wondering whether uh, Ukraine should remain the only priority on the agenda and maybe money should be uh, allocated elsewhere and uh, and also diplomatic efforts. So this is quite uh, detrimental. And the third point that may be difficult, it depends very much on the will of the Commission to insist or not to link the beginning of the process of enlargement and negotiation to reforms of the institutions, the budget, and the policies of the EU. Everyone agrees that enlargement will have to, conduct, to, to, to be handled with some reforms of EU institution uh, budget and policies, but there is no agreement on how to manage that. And, and I think this is a key point for December to see whether this conversation will start or not. I think that what Professor Costa mentioned, especially in this third, uh, the third point, that institutional reform and the debates, uh, not only institutional but also budgetary reform, is significant. And I think that the Commission tried to avoid these debates, also in terms of the mentioning in the package. So I think that the, what is the elephant in the room, and uh, perhaps some people are avoiding to discuss this, uh, is uh, the implications of the enlargement on the institutional architecture of the EU budgetary reforms. And uh, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is something that EU will need to not only reflect but also take concrete actions because if this doesn't go in parallel with the enlargement process, I think that the end uh, the process will not be manageable. We mentioned the geopolitical situation. We mentioned, of course, that the, there is a geopolitical imperative to enlarge. But do you think the countries, the member states, feel that urgency? I would say the appreciation member states are making of the situation is quite contrasted, but things are moving fast. I mean, one year ago, uh, there was no consensus among the 27 on, on the, the idea that uh, an, an institutional reform would be needed. And, uh, um, and even it was quite surprising to see them. Some leaders seem not to be aware that a new treaty is needed just to, to enlarge the EU. There was really the idea of, okay, we want to welcome maybe new countries, but without touching anything. In any case, you need a treaty uh, to change the existing treaty, to change the numbers and the figures and so on. And now I think that most members in the European Council are, re are accepting the idea that some institutional changes will be needed because obviously we cannot have a European Parliament with 1,000 members, we cannot have a commission with 40 members, and, and we cannot continue with unanimity in so many, in so many policies. So things are moving fast. I, I, I think that the next step now is having the same sort of reflection about changing the policies and changing the budget for the same reason. Everyone knows that an EU with 35 members or something would create a massive mess regarding existing policies and the structure of the budget. If we don't want all the 27 member states, existing member states, to become net contributors in the future, we have to redesign policies, to redesign the way the budget is organized. So I, I guess that we start to have an agreement on, on that. But then uh, a big challenge is to find really a consensus on where to go. And, and here it's only the very beginning of that, of that negotiation, which will be a very tough one. 
very quick reaction to what Professor Costa mentioned. Uh, I think that the, one of the sensitive topics that uh, we will be facing in terms of the institutional reform is the, the qualified majority voting rights. We agree that this is something that will ease the decision-making culture and the process. However, we also have to address the concerns of small and medium-sized countries and uh, make sure that their, their ideas and interests uh, can also be taken into account. Up until now, we talked about the EU internally. Going back to the decision to recommend opening accession negotiation to Ukrainian Republic of Moldova, what do you see as the main challenges for those two countries that they might face in meeting these conditions? Of course, we already mentioned the war and the massive plan of reconstruction in Ukraine, but do you see any other challenges? Yes, these countries have, let's say, three or four conditions uh, in order to uh, advance and open the uh, accession talks. But I think that the biggest challenge uh, is for Ukraine still remains fight against corruption. Yes, the Commission has priced the um, frameworks that Ukraine has adopted, but we also have to see the implementation parts. And uh, also the effect of the war, which was also mentioned in the package, is uh, establishing the functioning market economy and this adaptation to the EU's uh, internal market rules. And for Moldova, I think that uh, it's public administration. So this is something that uh, the, the package mentions itself. But I will also mention uh, the uh, political factors. And we have seen the elections in Moldova, local elections, Sandu has managed to get uh, not that significant win, that's the point. So uh, she really could not get the smaller villages and cities. So it means that again, uh, and signals unfortunately that um, the country uh, remains divided and the the pro-Russian and pro-European forces, not only political actors, but also cross-society, societal divisions are there. So I think that these political factors will also play out how Moldova will succeed on EU integration. But political will is there. The government is, of course, not only uh, pro-European, but also their level of competence is very high when it comes to the uh, technical adjustment and making sure that the reforms that they are asked by Brussels, uh, they have, let's say, concrete deliverables. But again, the challenges remain when it comes to the public administration. And I will also add the the oligarchizations. Diona, you mentioned uh, the oligarchization and uh, that the political will needs to be there. And that makes me make this link to uh, another recommendation, which was to grant candidate status to Georgia. This has been a decision which has long been desired by its citizens. But we know that one of the problems with Georgia is the political leaders' tendencies to not embrace the European perspective and the ability to finally shut the door to the threat of Russian influence and Russian disinformation. Are Georgia's political leaders ready to embrace this European perspective? And are they ready to shut the door to Russian influence? Good question, dear Barbara. I'm not sure, I have to say, because I think that in Georgia, and this is also a trend that we have also seen in the package, that uh, there is a dangerous trend in politics that is polarization. Polarization is everywhere, and uh, particularly in Georgia. So I, I, I see a certain cacophony in Georgia, unfortunately. There is no common and unified voice when it comes to the foreign policy. And uh, we also need to advance on the oligarchization. You mentioned the uh, Russian influence, which of course uh, poses uh, a threat. As you know, Georgia is also occupied by Russia, more than 20%, by the way, and this occupation is creeping, it continues. Uh, and so therefore, Georgia also has arguments why it could not align to the EU's foreign security policy when it comes to the sanctioning Russia. 
So I do hope, and I, I because I think that this is a significant and historic moment for Georgia. I remember when I was working at the commission and a few years ago, there was there was really a very real debate among officials and also political leaders to to see whether Georgia was really part of Europe or Asia. So there was not an understanding, and as also uh, Professor Costa mentioned a few years ago, two years ago, it the Eastern Partnership Policy has never ever imagined, not even a perspective, not to speak about the um, member. Uh, accession talks. So this is a historic momentum, and I think that this should be used by the political actors in Georgia. Next year, we will have the parliamentary elections. So there is a, a progress in Georgia when it comes to certain um, reform, but we, we need more political will. And uh, I do hope that Georgia will use this possibility. And again, the, the success story and uh, the overwhelming, let's say, support of the Georgian citizens is also one of the driving factors why Georgia should succeed on its integration path. A broader reflection is needed regarding how to organize enlargement in view of citizens. The, the last wave of enlargement in the 2000s was very much about political leaders of the candidate countries forcing, in a way, the country to go through many reforms and, and citizens not being very happy about that. And we have seen in most of the candidate countries, all the, the, the government have systematically lost all the election during the end of the 1990s and the beginning of the 2000s because they were very unpopular in conducting all those reforms that were needed to go towards European, uh, uh, European membership. So I think what is really needed for, for the new candidate countries to have another strategy and to, in, in a way, involve the citizens in that story, to have a reverse situation where the citizens would push their leaders to make the necessary efforts with a system of stick and carrots. And, and this is why we also need a new methodology regarding enlargement to be able to provide some benefit of enlargement very soon to those uh, to those countries. So in the case of Georgia, it's really interesting because uh, in majority, the population is quite willing to join the EU, but uh, and some resistance are more on the side of the of the leaders and and the oligarch. But but I guess that a similar situation may happen in all uh, the candidate countries, especially the Western Balkan. And that's why the EU really needs to brainstorm about how to organize that to a better involvement of citizens within the process, which was absolutely not the case the last time. So we have a number of tools at EU level, like panels of citizens, uh, citizens initiative, deliberative uh, organization, and so on. This should be applied to the candidate country in order to make that project something for citizens and not only for leaders. And since you mentioned the Western Balkans, Professor Costa, I'd like to move our attention to this part of the world. Another important decision of the enlargement package was the recommendation to open negotiation talks with Bosnia. But, and this is an important line, only once the necessary degree of compliance is achieved. So, Berta, is this recommendation good news for Bosnia and the Western Balkans in general? What do you think? This was received positively by Balkan leaders who, who read this statement as recognition of like the work that they had done in aligning with membership criteria. However, the announcement of the commission, with a very big formulation, they have traveled to, to do a gymnastic exercise um, to balance between incentives and uh, conditionality. So as you said, the commission said that they would recommend opening session negotiations with Bosnia once the necessary degree of uh, compliance with membership criteria was achieved. And the commission set a new date. Uh, March 2024, as the new date when they would uh, get back to the council with a, with a final recommendation, with a final um, resolution regarding uh, Bosnia. It is 
extremely unrealistic to expect Bosnia to, to make the progress that they, they haven't been done in four years, in just four months. This statement by the Commission should be uh, understood as some extra time given to the Council to reach a common position on Bosnia. Why? Because at the Council level, among member states, there, there is no uh, common position regarding whether Bosnia should be opening accession negotiations or not. There are some member states that have been in the past months really vocal about the need to open accession talks with Bosnia, and they have justified um, this position with the geopolitical and strategic need to, to advance in the accession path. However, there are other member states that have sh shown their um, reluctance towards taking such a decision, especially in light of the lack of progress or the very little progress that the Balkan country has done in meeting the, the established criteria. But why was this line added? Why did the commission decided to uh, say this additional thing? Why this was sentence added? It's because it's all about conditionality. And I think that the commission tries, and this is the major line that it wants to keep, that the enlargement process should remain the merit-based uh, process. And there are no short shortcuts. Of course, there is a, a political and geopolitical momentum, but uh, it will not, let's say, sacrifice the uh, key fundamentals. Another innovative initiative which accompanied the package is the EU growth plan in the Western Balkans, which includes 6 billion euros in loans and grants. The plan is aimed at helping to narrow the economic and social gap between the region and the European Union. But I was wondering to what extent this growth plan can encourage the implementation of reforms in the region? The growth plan was um, already presented one month ago, approx, during the Berlin summit in Tirana. It aims at triggering reforms. However, there are some substantial doubts that the package is going to be sufficient to trigger this, repo this reform, because in the end, it's not that much money for the reforms that are expected, and it's money that has to be given back. So there is a risk that, in the end, Western Balkan countries, especially those which are um, moving away from the EU, will choose other sources of financing that don't come with um, these reforms uh, in, in exchange, so to say. One of the things that the package contemplates is the access to the single market, which, in my opinion, is a, is a tricky thing because, of course, it can help the Western Balkans in getting closer to the EU, but it also has the risk of undermining their economies in the sense of like there will be many more imports than exports because, in the end, the EU... Uh, market is way larger than the markets in the Western Balkan countries. Uh, this is something that we had already seen in Croatia, for instance, when Croatia joined the, the single market in several aspects, such as, for instance, agriculture. In many of the regions of Croatia that were, you know, dependent on, on agriculture, their economies were large, largely damaged due to the entrance of like EU, EU products. There is also the issue of Western countries buying uh, everything in, in, the, in the candidate country, which is exactly what happened uh, um, when there was a big enlargement to Central and Eastern Europe, where uh, all, all the resources of the economy, of the production, were, were bought by, by funds coming from the, from the Western countries. So uh, here we have really a challenge. So if the accession of the single market is, is getting too early, it may be very detrimental to the candidate country. And there is another issue. The other issue is that it is not possible to isolate the single, the single market from the rule of law because the single market is about law. And so it can only work if you have made all the reform regarding the independence of justice, fighting against corruption, 
fighting against the oligarchy, etc., etc. Otherwise, it will be a mess. It, fundamentally speaking, the single market is not only about economy. It is very much about the rule of law. And so those who propose to, to organize very soon the accession of the candidate country to the single market, I think they're wrong because it cannot just work like that because with a single market, you have also free movement of population. And so you need some very strong institution, independence, justice, and a high degree of respect of the rule of law, which is currently not the case in most candidate countries. We're nearing the end of our podcast, but I cannot do this interview without mentioning the paper by the Franco-German Working Group, of which you, Professor Costa, are rapporteur. In this paper, you mentioned um, the idea of a four-tire Europe. And I was wondering whether you think the Commission and the package in general is starting to think along the lines of this four-tire Europe as described by the report. I think it's a very it's a very good question because the Commission has been very silent and very cautious until now on how to organize the enlargement and what should be the consequences regarding the um, institutional reform. So quite recently in a, in a speech at La Sorbonne on, on the beginning of October, Ursula von der Leyen said that institutional reforms will be needed. But it was very, it very unclear. To my knowledge, I don't even know if someone is working in the European Commission about that. They're just trying now to figure out how to organize that, uh, because more or less Ursula von der Leyen has promised some proposal during the Belgian presidency, so first of sem uh, semester 2024, but I'm not even sure that they will be able to publish something before uh, the next European, European election. So he here it's a big question mark about the capacity of the Commission to push also that file, which is not an easy one. Then going towards uh, the proposal of the Franco-German group has made of a four-tier uh, European integration? I'm not sure. I think this is a very political question. This is maybe not something for, for the European Commission. We have seen quite recently that member states have been very unpleased by the position taken by Ursula von der Leyen or Josep Borrell about the situation in Gaza, whenever they try to take a, a position on some very political question, member states are reacting in, in a quite vivid manner. So if the commission is certainly there to maybe list a number of priority, talk about the method of enlargement, list uh, some institutional reform to start discussing, but I cannot imagine the commission coming with a massive proposal of saying, okay, let's now organize European integration along a four-tier system. Let's give more flesh to the European political community, let's create the status of associate member. I can expect that more coming from the European Council, and this should be the topic for an intergovernmental conference. On one hand, the EU has to work internally to reform and to be and ready to enlarge. On the other hand, the aspiring member states still need to do a lot of work. The EPC has launched this new project, which is the EPC Task Force on EU Enlargement, to evaluate whether the EU in itself is ready to, to enlarge, and on the other hand, to identify a possible pathway forward. But I wanted to hear from you, Teona, the coordinator of this task force. How do you envision this new established task force uh, as impacting conversation and policymaking towards this, this goal? Yes, Barbara, a big mission ahead of us in the upcoming month to come. And I think that this is a very interesting times, again, where our task force also comes in, because on the one hand, as we have also discussing during the podcast, 
um, that we have the reports coming from the parliament uh, for the convention. Then on the other hand, we have also Franco-German papers and other papers that are there. And the EPC task force comes in the moment when we come into the recognition and realization that uh, we need, let's say, a middle way, a way that, that can work, that can have actions and solutions in this respect. And then when I say the middle way, of course, I'm not downsiding the importance of other papers and the strategies. However, the approach that we have is a cross-program analytical, but also comparative so to make sure that uh, we can identify, analyze and propose uh, the actionable recommendations in this respect. And the key areas where uh, our audience and uh, uh, also a broader audience should be expecting our added value niche of our task force is understanding and analyzing the uh, impact of EU enlargement on EU governance and institutions. And the second, of course, when it comes to the policies. Because enlargement cannot happen without revising uh, EU's internal policies when it comes to the budgetary reform, especially, and the common agricultural policy. And then last but not least, and you've mentioned as well, we, of course, should not forget about the perspectives of the candidate countries themselves. So this is what we are going to deliver before the EP elections next year. Thank you for listening to another episode of the EPC podcast. We will continue to follow closely the topic of enlargement and the EU reforms in the days and weeks to come, including through the work of our task force. To find out more, please visit the project page at epc.eu. See you next time. Until then, over and out.